So Deuteronomy chapter 13, this morning's teaching is serious. It follows on where we've been for the last two weeks. Of course it should. It's a sermon, right? It's a sermon of Moses. And so it makes sense that there would be some kind of a logical flow to it. Uh, sometimes we don't approach Scripture that way. I, I've learned, too, I think we're all learning together that, wow, there's a reason it's here, and there's a reason it's in the order that it's in. It's, there's a reason that it's presented the way it is. But two weeks ago, we dealt with the utter destruction of sin, that you don't leave a remnant of sin. You destroy sin in your life, that we, we get rid of sin. We don't, we don't make room at all for it. And, and then last week, we talked about fighting temptation. So... Utter destruction of sin, fighting temptation, but there's more deceit out there. And, and this really, if I, if I was doing sermon series, man, this would be the perfect, I couldn't have come up with a better part three of our dealing with sin and, and temptation in our lives, as we will see presented by Moses this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Father, I pray, Lord, that our understanding would increase this morning by the revelation of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you truly will dial us down to what this is all about. And that we wouldn't get hung up, Lord, on systems or constructs or even theological uh, perspectives, Lord. But we would be focused on the simplicity of walking in relationship with our Lord Jesus. Jesus, it, I hear it over and over in my brain. You saying... You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. Yet you were not willing to come to me so that you might have life. Lord, even as we study through these things, would you strip away the religion that sometimes can cloud our thinking and help us to see Jesus? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is an interesting chapter. This is fascinating uh, to me. I think it will be to you as well what Moses deals with here. Because the people are coming into a pagan land with everything that that means. We don't fully comprehend. We don't know what pagan really means. We're seeing a country go that direction very quickly. But we have enough of a history and enough roots in Judeo-Christian ethics and values and morals that, that we still don't fully comprehend what it would be like to walk into a land that is fully, utterly, completely pagan. So Moses is dealing with these things. And I want to give you some names this morning to think about across, across history. Jacob, Joseph, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel. Joseph, Mary's betrothed, Jesus' supposed father. The Magi. How about Pilate's wife? Muhammad, Joseph Smith. What do all these names have in common? They all claimed to dream dreams. They were all dreamers of a sort. I'm not talking about DACA. They were all dreamers. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein based on her own nightmares. 
An advisor to Abraham Lincoln claimed that two weeks before he died, he had a nightmare where he attended his own funeral and someone at that funeral told him he had been assassinated. Paul McCartney dreamed the music to yesterday, woke up, went to the piano, started playing it. It came to him in a dream. He originally called it scrambled eggs. I don't think it would have hit like it did. (laughs) Scrambled eggs. James Cameron dreamed the flying scenes from his movie Avatar. And Stephanie Meyer's inspiration for her once famous, now insufferable Twilight series came to her in a dream. People dream dreams. People claim things in dreams. And I can't get that 1975 Super Tramp song out of my head. Dreamer, you're nothing but a dreamer. It's going to stick with you. I'm telling you all day long. But can you put your hands in your head? Oh, no. Okay, that's it. (laughs) All week long, I woke up this morning, dreamer. Uh, I like the words, though. It's interesting the way they phrase it. But can you put your hands in your head? Oh, no. What he's saying is you can't get your hands on a dream. You can't get your fingers on it. You can't wrap, wrap your arms around it. It's elusive, the source of the dream, where it came from. They're, they're, they're usually uncertain. Typically, we'll have a dream and wake up and go, what was that? That's just bizarre. And yet, dreams are as ancient as human experience. People have been dreaming since Adam and Eve in the garden. And sometimes I think dreams are just a mental trash dump. All the bizarre stuff that we don't think about or don't want to think about kind of mishmashed and comes out as we're sleeping to, to clear and, and you know, go into the, uh, the waste paper bin of our, of our mental computers. Sometimes dreams are creativity blossoming in our sleep. You know, we just have a creative rush, like Paul McCartney's yesterday. Sometimes God speaks. The Bible tells us very clearly. Job 33, verse 14, the young man Elihu, who I I believe in, in the book of Job is a beautiful representation, a real young man, a true young man, a wise young man, because he was led by the Spirit. And he's kind of a picture of the Holy Spirit in in the book of Job, but he said, indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 says, it'll come about after this that I'll pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And you know that Peter grabbed hold of that and applied it to Pentecost and what began to unfold then has been unfolding for 2,000 years. Your old men will dream dreams. Old bros, how we doing? Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, God says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so Joel said it, Peter quoted it, uh, Elihu referred to it, God uses dreams. You can say that with absolute assurance, and he will in these last days. At his discretion, for his purposes. So, That being the case, we need some clarity. We need conviction about these things because it's the Lord who also said, Jeremiah 32 verse, or 23 verse 32, behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams. 
and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor did they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Or Zechariah chapter 12, uh, 10, verse 12, the prophet says, the teraphim, which are household idols, speak iniquity. The diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep and are afflicted because there is no shepherd. Oh, that's what we need. We need a shepherd. We have one. Jude chapter four, verse, or, or Jude, there's no chapter four. Why did I put that? In the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, he says, and I believe it's either verse four or verse eight. It's gonna be one of the two. These men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. How? By dreaming. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse four, see to it that no one misleads you. There will be many who come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Jesus later said, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. He again says in Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Dreams. Dreams can either be nightmares of deception or they can be from the Lord. Okay? So how do we know? How do we discern dreams? Before we even get into the chapter, I want to give you two basic litmus tests this morning. So simple for determining the source or the origin of dreams, if it's from the Lord or if it's not. Also, two litmus tests for determining the claims of the dreamer. If I were to stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, I had a dream, folks, and this is what we are to do. This is what the Lord told me. How would you know? How could you trust that? Hey, when we're in the word, that's easy, right? Rick quoted that. Okay, that's what it says. I disagree with Rick, but he said what's in the word, so therefore I guess I'm disagreeing with the word. I gotta get that straight. But if I were to speak in terms of dreams or visions, something that I saw, something that came to me in the night hours, well, then you'd have great question and should. So the litmus test. Is it from God? Is it not from God? Is the dreamer speaking truth? Is the dreamer telling lies? Two litmus tests. Test number one, does the dreamer lead you to or away from Jesus Christ? That's simple. Does this lead you toward Jesus or away from Jesus? And secondly, do the dreams themselves summon obedience to God's word? Now, I'm gonna give you more as we go on, but that's about as basic as it gets does the dream, does the vision lead me to the Lord, declare of the Lord? Does it glorifying to the Lord? Or does it lead me away? And does it inspire, does it summon obedience to the word of God? This was great concern for Moses because again, he had a people all gathered there in the plains of Moab just across from, Jer from, from Jericho, ready to go into the promised land that was a pagan land rife with dreams and visions and lies and deception. He was sending them into this very dark place. Yes, it was the promised land because God promised it to Israel, but it was a dark place. And so Moses is concerned. He's about to go home and be with God. No problem there. He's, he's gonna die, rest with his fathers as the Bible says. 
But they're going into this place of darkness. So Moses is thinking about this, and he is in application mode in Deuteronomy, as we've talked about. He's preaching the relevancy of Torah law for their new life in the promised land. And in chapter 13, Moses is still dealing, as he was in chapter 12, with the first three commandments. We talked about this Wednesday night. He's making application of all of the Ten Commandments in their personal lives, in their community lives, in the promised land. And right now he's on the first three. Specifically in chapter 13, he hones in on commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. This is still a problem that plagues the church today. No other gods before me. Now, this part of the sermon, I got to give you a a little heads up. It, It carries a warning against deceptive dreamers and false prophets. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is going to give God's standardized test of a prophet. How do you test a prophet? So he'll get specific in chapter 18. But listen to the context of the warning that he's giving in chapter 13. Go back to verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You shall have no other gods before me. Moses says, you shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They have even burnt their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. It is not about keeping the law. It is about keeping your eyes on the one true God. That's the whole point of the commandments. It's to help the people keep pure in their relationship with Yahweh. Now, this is a little strange what he says, and I want you to note this. He says, beware, verse 30, that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you. What? Beware of their ensnarement after you've wiped them out. I I would understand if it was just beware of their ensnarement, but if they're gone, they're gone, right? How can Israel be ensnared by these nations after they're gone? Well, quick show of hands, how many have sinned after the old man or the old woman was supposedly destroyed? No one else, a couple of you are willing to be brave and raise your hands. The rest of you are a bunch of liars. You just sinned right now. You're sinning right here this morning. Did you give your life to Jesus? You have that moment of clarity and faith and, and everything changes in your heart and you get baptized. You come out of the water and you're like, I am clean and it doesn't take long to get dirty. You've destroyed the old man yet the sin's still there. And it's the same thing in the land of Canaan. They would destroy the people, but the sin was still there, ensnared after they're gone. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But we know that even with the new creature, old habits die hard. There's still that stuff back there. And Moses is going to explain exactly how a people destroyed can still influence and ensnare. The temptation, again, that he's dealing with here, the temptation or the ensnarement, is to violate the first commandment, that is to worship or go after other gods. 
And we, we do that. Do you realize how often we do this? I said this a moment ago, and I paused because I wanted to speak to this. We do this in the church today. We go after other gods every time we put human mediators above the Messiah. Every time we claim that we've got to go through a pastor to get to God, we have just put another God before him. We have just elevated someone between us and the Lord God. Every time we go after Christian celebrity, how many of you listen to Amir Safardi? Let me just show hands. Okay, I love Amir. Guy's biblical, he's spot on, he's Israeli, so it's fun to listen with the accent, right? What makes him different than any other pastor? I'll tell you what does. He has a platform. And praise the Lord, he's using it for Jesus. He is not your savior. How many people listen to Jack Hibbs? Right? How many people are listening to J.D. Farage? Those three have really have captured a lot of attention, especially in the last couple of years. In fact, I think I've mentioned their names before. I haven't heard, just so you know, anything unbiblical from any one of these three men. I think they're preaching the truth. But it is amazing to me how quickly we rush after Christian celebrity. Be careful. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever said, most of you I hope have never said this, but I've actually heard someone said this. Well, Pastor Rick said, no other gods. Most of you would go, that's not a problem, Rick. I know, thank you, good, good. But anytime we, we, we get more excited about the, how many people were so excited that Roni Winter was going to come and speak to us about Israel? Oh, Roni's coming, Roni's coming. And I don't know if you remember what I said at the time, but hey, we have a celebrity who's going to be with us Wednesday night, <laughs> Jesus. How many of us get more excited about a cultural icon or popular speaker or pastoral personality than we do about the fact that Jesus Christ is with us when two or three are gathered in his name? There's only one celebrity in the church, and his name is Jesus. And he is our focus. And anything else that gets in the way is to put another God between me and him. I'm not saying don't listen to these people. Don't, don't pay attention, especially if they're speaking biblical truth. In fact, I would say only if they're speaking biblical truth. Man, turn it on, listen to them, get fed, be in the word all week long. But don't put a person between you and Jesus Christ. No other God. Well, in this brief chapter, Moses gives three sources of the aftermath. Three sources of influence of this aftermath temptation to worship or go after other gods. And I'm going to use these three sources as our outline this morning. So here's the outline for you. Number one, the mystical prophet or dreamer. The mystical prophet or dreamer. And then we'll come to, secondly, the misleading family member, or friend. And finally, the malicious movement of a city or a community. The mystical prophet or dreamer, the misleading family member or friend, and the malicious movement of a city or community. Warning. God's prescriptive punishment here is severe. What the Lord says to do, how to handle this, is severe, especially to our safe space snowflake cultural sensibilities. <laughs> we read things like this and go, wow, that's, that's, that's really harsh. I want you to remember something because he's, kind of, he's talking about utter destruction of sin. He's talking about the utter decimation of a culture, of, of cultures of people here going into the land. And he's going to deal with the same thing with his own people who sin. Please remember this. 
Number one, that these things are written for deterrence. Deterrence. You know the number one reason why capital punishment, I believe, is a good idea? Deterrence. It's not because we want to kill people. It's so that people will be deterred from killing people. Deterrence. Number two, keep in mind that all of this comes from a God with eternity in mind. What matters to him is eternity, not your temporary position, not our temporary comfort, our eternal condition. That's always on God's mind. He gives his laws for deterrence. He gives them from a perspective of eternity. And remember that the patience of God far outlasts all of these judgments and punishments. God still loves Israel. For all of the failure of Israel over the years, all of the sin of Israel down through time, God still loves this people. Well, let's get into it. The mystical prophet or dreamer. Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, then the sign or the wonder and the sign or the wonder comes true. This really caught my attention. It's like, wait a minute. This, this isn't like... I mean, this, this person's got some mystical ability. Something's happened, some kind of proof, some kind of sign, some kind of miraculous thing has come up from this prophet or from this dreamer, which makes it difficult for us because, well, well they showed us a sign. They have some supernatural ability, must be from the Lord. That's not the test. That is not the test. The word prophet here is navi. It's where the, the Hebrew people have the nevi'im, which is the prophets, in fact, the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh, which is Torah, it's Nevi'im, and it's Ketuvim. So it's the three sections of Torah, and Nevi'im is the prophets. So Navi here is prophet. It means a speaker or a spokesman for. So the prophet is one who purports to be a spokesman for God. Dreamer here is Cholem, which is a dreamer or a revelator. A revelator, someone who brings some revealing information from a mystical place. This is someone who now backs up. Understand, he's talking about this prophet or dreamer is someone who backs up their, their words or their, their vision or their ideas with a dream. They, or, or their dream, sorry, they back it up with signs, wonders, and predictive fulfillments. They'll state, this, this is what I believe the Lord's showing us to do. You say, why should we do that? Watch this. Boom. They do something magical. And you go, wow, okay. Maybe they're someone we should follow. They're supernatural here. You know, if you predict things enough, eventually one of them's bound to come true. And you say, oh, he's a prophet. Thank you, Nostradamus. People are talking about Nostradamus. Well, he predicted some amazing things. Yeah, and he predicted some utter fallacies too. And if you do that enough, and if you're vague enough, kind of like horoscopes, if you're vague enough, people will read it and go, oh, that's me. Something's going to happen to you this week as a human being. Wow, it did. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 reminds us there is spiritual deceit in play. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You read that verse, and you would be mistaken if you said, oh, well, that's the unseen stuff. No, see, here's the deal. The spiritual forces can affect the seen, can impact the physical world to deceive. You're saying you think that there's magic in the world? Yeah, I do. 
black magic, dark magic, stuff that is not from God, stuff that is used by the devil, by the demonic powers to deceive people. If they come along and they show you a sign or a wonder, this is someone who's actually doing the miraculous. There are going to be people who come to the Lord at the last and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do miracles in your name? And they'll say, I didn't know you. So it's not about the miracles. It's not about the signs. Colossians 1.13 tells us he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But there's still a domain of darkness. There's still evil in this world and there's still power that is in that. And so Moses says if they even show you a sign or a wonder and it comes true concerning which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Remember what I said, the number one litmus test is, it's not if someone has a clairvoyant dream that comes true. It's not if the dreamer or the prophet produces some kind of sign or wonder. The question is, does it lead you to or away from Jesus? And even if the sign comes true, if it leads away from Jesus, you are not to follow it. And he continues and he says, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Uh-oh. Okay, that just undermined everything that we talked about last week because we said the Lord our God doesn't test. Jacob said that in the book of James. Do not say when you're tested that you're tested by God for the Lord himself does not test Anybody? Well, it just says the Lord is now testing them. Moses, did, did Moses get it wrong or, or, or did Jacob get it wrong or was it wrong somewhere? Listen, God doesn't test to sin. He will never tempt to sin. He will never entice you to sin. But here with Israel, Moses does say these things will test their love of the Lord their God. He'll test your love. Not like he's testing you so that you prove your love to him. He'll put your love to the test so that you know that you love the Lord. So that you are convinced that you love God. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know that you love the Lord? Are you certain of it? Do you have a tested, proven love? I was listening again. I've told you I've been listening through this the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill uh, podcast. And it's really tragic. It's tragic. And I'm listening to it because as a, as a church leader, I, I'm, I'm trying to get perspective and understand even from where we're at here. I don't want to go down a road. Not that we would be a mega church. I, I don't think that. I, but, but the personal stuff and, and the crises that happened and the abuse of leadership, and those are things that concern me. And the most recent one, he talks about Joshua Harris. Do you all remember the name Joshua Harris? He wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He was a, a, a church rock star in the, in the um, 1990s, early 2000s. And so I Kiss Dating Goodbye made, be, became this major book. Joshua Harris himself became a pastor of a mega church at the age of 29. 
his church went through all kinds of convulsions and problems. In fact, it was kind of a movement of a number of churches, and there was spiritual abuse in those churches. And when he found out about it, he was really upset. And they, they looked at their own church, and they looked at their own theology, and they reformed where they were at, and they did the right thing. But then the more he thought about it, the more he looked at his own book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and looked at the, the weight that it put on people, young people, and the hurt that he... he believed that it had caused people and it upset him and he began to renounce those things and then he stepped down as a pastor and then he was divorced and then he left faith. And this happens in the church and, and I'm listening to the podcast this morning. Why are we turning me up? Turn me down. Don't do that. You're freaking me out. I'm listening to the podcast this morning and they're talking about what, what they call the loss of faith. I'm, I'm way off note, but this is so important. What they call the loss of faith is deconstructionism, which makes it sound real heady. It's a broken relationship is what it is. Deconstruct, I'm, I'm deconstructing, you know, my faith and my religion. And, and they're talking about how do you get back to that and how do you get back? And, and it's an interview with Josh Harris and he's, he's fully admitting, I, I, I may at some time come back to, to faith, but right now I'm having to strip it all away and rethink it all. And I kept sitting, sitting there going, somebody say Jesus. Somebody just say Jesus. Your church can fall apart, but if you know Jesus Christ, you will not. And your, your theological construct can be proven wrong, but if you know Jesus, it doesn't matter. Everything you ever thought you believed and followed and obeyed and, and all the rules in your life could start to fall apart one by one, but if you believe Jesus, you'll be okay. And I'm listening through this podcast, and I, I'm, I'm actually talking out loud at my kitchen counter to these guys who are on a podcast. They can't hear me. I'm like, say Jesus. Somebody tell Josh, forget about church and history and, and reformation and all of these things that you're so concerned about that, that have hurt people and abused. Just set that aside. Do you know Jesus? Do you know you love Jesus? That's the issue, right? Not whether a church rises or falls. Okay, so, so does, does it lead you to or away from the Lord? And the dreamers come along and they, they spout these things and they come up with these things and, and the Lord will allow these things to happen. Why? To prove our love for him. To prove that though the liar or the deceiver comes along, though the pastor comes along and splits and divides and destroys a church and people end up hurt and wounded, the Lord's saying, but, but, but do you love me? Do you love me? That's, that's what this is about. Well, verse four. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, cling to him. Do you hear God's prescription here? Even for the deception of a dreamer or a false prophet? God's prescription is direct. Six things that you and I can do every single day right there in verse four. Verse four is a great one just to memorize and think about and follow Follow him, fear him, keep him, listen to him, serve him, cling to him. I don't hear anything in there about a religion. I hear nothing in there about following my, my personal reformational construct. You know, there are those that there was a big revival of, of, the, of the reformed movement um, in, the, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, a big push back toward reformed theology. They didn't go back far enough. Forget about the Reformation. Just go back to Jesus. 
and focus on Jesus. And I don't mean to offend anybody's faith. If you were raised and have a solid faith and you're thankful that you were raised in the Reformed Church, that's great, that's fine. It's not going to save you. Jesus Christ, follow him, fear him, keep his word, listen to him, serve him, cling to him, because frail human flesh needs a savior. Verse five, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. That word purge, by arta, means sweep away, eradicate. Moses is talking to the people going into a very dark land. They're going to push back against the people. But Moses says, and you need to eradicate the paganism. Every idol, every teraphim, every Asherah pole, every high place. You need to eradicate all of it. Do you know that didn't happen until Josiah? Not our worship guy. The, 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 Josiah the king. He was the first one to actually remove the, idol, the idols from the high places. And, and then after that, they, they all got put back anyway. It, it, it's stunning. The Lord says... Clear the, purge the evil from among you. So keep that in mind. Secondly, we come to the misleading family member or friend. Verse six, if your brother, your mother's son, just to clarify, (laughs) your son or daughter, if the wife you cherish or your friend who is, is your own soul entice you secretly saying, let's go serve other gods whom you neither neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are all around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. And there's a strong contrast in verse 8 back to verse 4. Verse 4, follow, fear, keep, listen, serve, and cling to the Lord. But here when it comes to the false prophet, Or the dreamer who would lead you away from the Lord, do not yield, listen, pity, spare, or conceal him or her. That's interesting. Don't even conceal. Don't cover for him. Don't cover for the deceiver in the church fellowship. It's my own brother. You don't cover for him. You call it out. It's kind of like the old soldier's phrase, give no quarter. Give no quarter. Back in the day, to give quarter meant to, uh, it meant to take a, an enemy combatant prisoner so that they could be ransomed later for a bargain. So there was some degree of mercy in giving quarter to someone. Give no quarter. To say give no quarter was a death sentence. If the commander on the battlefield said give no quarter, it meant wipe out every enemy soldier you see. Do not take anyone captive. Just kill them. And that's what we're talking about here with these dreamers, these false prophets, even these family members or friends who would lead you away from one true, the one true God. Verse 9, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people. 
So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. So verse 11 is again deterrence. Now, please listen. If you're visiting us this morning, that is not standard protocol at the bridge. I want to make sure you know we've never stoned anyone who's disagreed with us. <laughs> but personally, especially now when it gets down into family, okay, the false prophet, the dreamer, all right, but that's not someone I know. What about family and friends? How many do you know speak in terms of the universe, karma, good luck? People who are denying or who are ignorant of the truth and yet we say nothing? <laughs> no, don't say anything. Just let it be. How carelessly in our faith, even today, do we yield, listen to, pity, spare, or conceal false, untested dreamers? Again, I get it. It, it, it may be family. It may be longtime friends who are as close as my own soul. We've walked as buddies forever. How can I? Listen, no doubt with solemn heart, the Lord says, give no quarter. Give no quarter. Now, understand, we are not talking about a brother or a sister or a friend's sins. What are you supposed to do with the sins of a brother or sister? Restore them. Restore them. We are to be a people of reconciliation and to seek restoration for people. What we're talking about here is those who would try to draw you away from trusting Jesus. Give no quarter. What does that mean? It means, at, at, at least it means if someone keeps trying to draw you away from Jesus, you have the boldness to say, listen, I love Jesus, and if we're going to have these conversations, I can't listen. At most, it means at some point, you might have to cut off a person from relationship. If the relationship with the person is causing you to draw back from your relationship with Jesus, the question is, which relationship is most important to you? You shall have no other gods before me. It has to be Jesus first, whether it's with my friends, whether it's with my family. Jesus first. Now, again, understand, in it, we live in grace. Praise God for amazing grace. So we live in a time where we are preaching and teaching the love of God in Christ Jesus, the grace of God for all people. That's our heart. That's what we want people to know. But if someone is so hardened against Jesus that they're actually trying to lure you away from him in action, in behavior, come on, let's go out drinking tonight. Yeah, I, I know when we do that, I always go too far, and I, I, that's just not good. I, I'm not gonna do that, because that's gonna, that's gonna draw me away from Jesus. Oh, come on. Come on, it's Thursday. You got plenty of time between now and Sunday. I'm giving one very lame example. There are so many ways that we can be drawn away from Jesus in our relationships. Don't give an inch. Don't give a millimeter. Don't, don't even get a, give a bit to anyone who might cause you to worship or go after other gods. And you might say, well, Rick, I, think, I, I see the application you're making, but you're taking an Old Testament mindset. 
and putting it into kind of a harsh uh, reality in this age of grace, it's not just an Older Testament mindset. Listen to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, cool, let's go. No, he gave a warning. He said, hey, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You follow me, you're going to be on the cold, cold, dark ground. You follow me, you're going to be under a tree some nights. That's just so, you follow me, you're not going to settle in this world. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Oh, absolutely, go bury your father. No, no. Jesus said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Have you ever had a family member get in the way of your following after Jesus? You've got to allow the dead to bury their own dead. What about my, my father who died, and I don't think he believed in Jesus. Is he going to hell? That's not the issue. Do you understand that that's not the issue? Your issue is your heart and your faith in Jesus. What about my, my friend who doesn't believe? If I believe in Jesus, am I now condemning my friend to hell? Well, I'll tell you what. You're not going to do your friend any good by denying Jesus. The issue is your heart with the Lord. You may or may not be able to impact another person and where they're at. If they're dug in against God, they have to deal with that, and our God of mercy will deal with them. But where's your heart? Jesus, another said, I'll follow you, Lord. First permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You give no quarter to the old life. You choose Jesus and come forward. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul said, we're no longer to be like children tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into our theological construct of the denomination of our choice. No, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. 2 John, uh, John verse 9. John says, anyone, I love this verse because it really throws a wrench into some things today. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son and John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door. Do you receive them in? Now, some would say, well, yeah, because I, I want them to know Jesus, and I understand that mindset. Are you prepared to deal with the deceit that they will lay out before you because it is very subtle. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses will talk about the kingdom. They'll talk about paradise on earth. They will say much of the stuff that I've taught in here coming right out of Revelation in the millennial kingdom, how Jesus is going to reform the earth and make it paradise. It's going to be beautiful under the rule and the reign of Jesus coming out of Jerusalem. And they'll talk in those terms. And at first you'll kind of go, Oh, I, I think that's what I believe. Hey, these people are pretty nice. 
And they dress conservatively, so that's something. If you're not equipped to deal with a Jehovah's Witness, don't open the door to them. Because John says you'll even participate in their evil deeds. Now, you may say, I get that about door knocking dreamers, that I have no personal relationship with them. Okay, that's fine. So I can just, I just won't answer the door. Or, or maybe I'll say, no thanks, I, I know what I believe, you know. Of course, if you say that, they'll say, well, won't you take our pamphlet? <laughs> Close the door. It's easier to do that with, with some, and by the way, let me, let me add this, tag this on here. If you know how to bring scriptural truth to bear and a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on your door, then fine, have the conversation if you are prepared for that warfare. If you're ready for that battle and you know what you're talking about and you know what they're gonna bring, have that battle. But otherwise, why would you even allow yourself to get lured into a place where you could have another God before him? That's the concern that, that John is talking about. But again, you might say, that's fine with people I don't have a personal relationship to. I can walk through an airport and a Hare Krishna comes up and I can go, thanks for the flower, you know? But what about that close friend who keeps talking about their karma? which we're hearing more and more these days, karma and universe and all that, you know, universalism and paganism. We're hearing it all the time. What do you do with that? Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. My friends, that is prophetic of the end times. Why are we shocked when it happens? I'm not saying why are we upset. Yes, we should be upset, but we shouldn't be shocked when within our own household there's division over the name of Jesus. He said it would happen. And then Jesus said this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And I would add to that and you're not going to save a son or a daughter or a mother or father by loving them more than you love Jesus. Luke quotes Jesus at another time saying something very similar but even more serious. <laughs> Listen to this, Luke 14, 26. <laughs> if anyone comes to me, Jesus said, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, I thought he was a God of love. It is hate by comparison to the love you have for Jesus. That, that's the point that he's making. He's not saying to hate anyone. Of course he's not. He's saying that your love for me should be so intense, so marvelous, so all-encompassing that even your love for your beloved bride looks like hate by comparison. How could he say such a thing? we still don't fully comprehend how deep and intense and passionate the love of God is. The love that he's called us into is life-changing, overwhelming. Test number one, does the dreamer lead you to or away from Jesus? Jesus says, if it leads you away from me, have nothing to do with it. Do the words, test number two, of the dreamer or the prophet arouse obedience to the word of God? You understand, again, obedience to the word of God causes us to follow, fear, listen to, serve, and cling to the Lord. That's the point. 
This is to help us in that relationship to keep putting us back into the, the, the presence of the Lord. So, the misleading family member. What was the first one? The mystical prophet or dreamer. Number three, how about the malicious movement of a city or community, or we could even say a mob. Listen to this, verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying or, or saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly if it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike. Now, hold on just a second. I like, I like verse 14. You shall investigate, search out, inquire thoroughly. But what, what is this about? This is about in a community that some worthless men are spreading some things. And now it's not just, it's not just you and the dreamer having a conversation. It's not just within your own family or circle of friends. Now, this is some worthless men are impacting the entire community. This is something spreading in Anacortes, something moving in Oak Harbor, something that's going out beyond family and friends. This is a malicious movement of worthless men. And note this, the phrase worthless men. In the Hebrew, b'nai b'lya'al, how do I write that down? Don't even worry about it. <laughs> Bene bila ya'al. The reason I say it is this. It's not just to try and speak Hebrew. It means sons of wickedness. Bene is sons of. So worthless men, these are sons of worthlessness, sons of wickedness or evil. But by the first century, that Hebrew phrase had become a specific name. The phrase for worthless wickedness was synonymous with Satan himself. Listen to the Hebrew word again, Bilyayal, Belial, Belial. In the Newer Testament, 2 Corinthians 6:5, what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's the Hebrew word Bilyal, which is worthlessness, wickedness, and it is synonymous with Satan. Something satanic is spreading in the community. That's what Moses is now talking about. And again, verse 14, he says, then investigate, search out, inquire. Thoroughly, and I like that. Paul put it this way, do not quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Don't be afraid of the dream. Don't be afraid of the vision. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Christianity is not a brainless religion. Following Jesus is not blind faith. You search, you inquire, you study, you investigate. You be sure that what I'm telling you this morning, you search it out. You read it through. You consider these things. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And abstain from every form of evil. That is a picture right there of the dynamic discerning church. Dynamic because we're not afraid of the work of the Spirit among us. Discerning because we're making sure it is the work of the Spirit among us. And that's where Ephesus, by the way, got it right. You may recall this. Revelation chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. That's excellent. That is good. In fact, I think sometimes we rush to verse 4 of Revelation 2 so quickly, we miss the fact this is a great church. This is a solid people. They're testing and investigating. They're in the word. They're not, taking, they're not being taken by any evil. Good for them. Jesus says, I applaud that in you. And then he says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. And what's so stunning there is you can be an investigative church. You can be a strong, discerning body and forget that it's all about Jesus. You can be a good, solid denominational movement and have all of your theology in place and forget that it's still all about Jesus. You can still be putting another God before him. That God may just be your religious construct. Let me pause for a moment here, and we're almost done, but, but I want to give you, I want to add to our two-part litmus test three more ways to discern the dreamers and the false prophets and even the family member and, of course, the malicious mob as things like this can spread out in cities and communities. Three more things to note here, real quickly. Character over charisma. Character over charisma. It cannot be about the flashiness of their signs. It must be about the fruit of the Spirit. Character over charisma. Jesus said so clearly, you'll know them by their fruits. You can test and measure what the teachers are saying. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorns nor figs from thistles, are they? Every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Character over charisma. So if you're listening to someone, if you're following a leader, if there's a Bible teacher out there, man, I love listening to this guy. And everybody's pouring on and everybody's saying, hey, you got to get this podcast. Fine. Great. Character over charisma. Look to the character. Secondly, secondly, creed over coziness. Creed over coziness, it's not how they make you feel all warm inside as they cozy up to your soul. It's what are they saying? What are they teaching? Let me put it to you this way. They may speak with the same vocabulary and be using a completely different dictionary. They may use words familiar to you. The Jehovah's Witness will talk about Jesus. The Mormon, oh, will applaud Jesus. But they're not talking about the same Jesus. Muslims love to have conversation about Jesus. They're not talking about the same Jesus. The definitions are different. And so they'll use the same vocab, which will be comforting and cozy and make you feel great, but the creed is the issue. Same words, different meanings. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. 
which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Still the gospel of Christ, same vocab, still talking about Jesus, but slight twist, slight distortion. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And if that single verse was adhered to 200 years ago, there would not be Mormonism in the world today. The whole thing based on the angel macaroni. Maroni. Maroni. Yeah. Based on an angel bringing a truth. That angel then, if he existed and if he actually brought the truth, should be accursed. Because it wasn't truth. Paul says, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Matthew 16, verse 15, I believe is the key to the whole thing when Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Creed over coziness. What is the truth that they're espousing? What are they saying? Does it align with who Jesus says he is? So again, character over, over charisma and creed over coziness. And finally, number three, converts over claims. Now, this one's a little more dicey, but it's still useful in thinking through whether someone is legit. Converts over claims, not over, over what they've claimed to have accomplished, but what, what are their converts like? What's their church like? What are the people who follow them like? Again, it's not quite as solid as the first two because the followers themselves may be a bunch of deceived people. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. However, the followers will give you an indication of this dreamer, this false prophet, this family member, this friend, this person speaking somewhere out in the community. Listen to what Paul said. You all are familiar with this, 2 Timothy 3. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And he starts to run a Pauline list, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he says, Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Listen to this. Always learning, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. The false dreamer, prophet, teacher can impact then, obviously, individuals, they can impact families and friendships, cities, nations. Ultimately, that's how Antichrist is going to deceive the global world. He will come across as a charismatic, cozy leader making all kinds of claims with signs and wonders. Great power. People are going to see that and say, oh, yeah, he's our guy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 defines him as the one coming whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive, what? The love of the truth so as to be saved. Converts over claims, creed over coziness, character 
over charisma in determining. We must be a discerning people in these last days, especially as we see this country and this world becoming more, not less, pagan. Verse 15, back in Deuteronomy 13, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. The cattle part doesn't bother me at all. It's just more hamburgers. <laughs> then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. It shall be a ruin or a heap or a mound forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the ban. Oh, that word ban? Harim. Utter destruction. We talked about two weeks ago. Nothing that which is, from that which is put under the utter destruction shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger, show mercy on you, have compassion on you, and make you increase just as he swore to your fathers. But you know what happened? After mostly destroying the pagan nations, they left some in which would be problematic in their entire existence. But after the destruction of these nations, after the conquest of the land, Israel, with very rare exception, never followed through on the punishments required here. They never did these things. Punishments for the mystical dreamer, the misleading family or friend, the, the malicious mob. Instead, what happened to Israel? They went into idolatry. They went away from the Lord their God. And they ended up decimated from the land. So as harsh or as strong as you think some of these punishments of the Lord are, where he says utterly wipe them out, take them down, what ended up happening? The entire nation was wiped out. The entire nation was taken down. The entire world is gonna go headlong after Antichrist. God is thinking in terms of deterrence. He's thinking in terms of eternity. But marvelously, the patience of the Lord long outlasts all of that. Now again, I'm not suggesting death penalty for paganism. But the consequences are far more serious, even than Israel's tragic 1878-year loss of their land. The consequences here that we're talking about are eternal. You shall not have any other God before me. Why, Lord? Because no other God can get you home. No other God can save you. There are no other gods. Not like him. And because there's no other way to the Father and to life forever but through Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But here's the last thing, and I'll end with this. Did you catch throughout this whole chapter the inherent concern, what the real focus is here. He's talked about don't have other gods before me before. What's the problem right here? And it's the phrase among you. Among you, among you, among you. It's one thing to talk about false prophets or pedantic pagans, you know, deceitful dreamers from the outside. You, you can talk about that. But the danger is if it's a dreamer, a family member, or a community among you. He's talking about the threat from within. The last two weeks, we have talked about temptations from without. This is about that which comes from within. Jesus said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep. They act like sheep. They have bad hair like sheep. They talk like sheep. They have slightly sharper teeth. Wolves in sheep's clothing. But the key is they come from within, within a family, within a friendship, within a church community, within the larger community. The threat, the danger is from those who you would otherwise trust. And that's where we begin to then really apply these litmus tests. Does this take me to or away from the Lord Jesus Christ? And when it comes up from within, that's when it's most deceitful. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. But God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus himself warned that the closer we get to the end of this age, the more deceit will be on the rise. So family, expect this. Of course it's going to be out there. Of course you're going to turn on Netflix and there won't be a single show that doesn't espouse sexual immorality. Of course it's going to be that way. Of course, wherever you go, you're going to see it. In the world, in society, even in the community. But Jesus warns you will see it from within. Be careful. When Pastor Rick gets up there on a Sunday morning, you better have a Bible with you and have it open. Because any one of us are capable of misleading and or being misled. I'm not sitting here saying, trust me. I'm sitting here saying, trust him. Trust him. We've got to be more spiritually vigilant and discerning in the church now than in the previous 2,000 years. I'm absolutely serious about that. You might say, well, how can we? Verse 18, if you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments, Moses says, which I'm commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. And let me read verse four again to you. You shall follow the Lord your God. Fear him, keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Father, we come to you this morning. Truly, Lord, I'm unsettled by this teaching. I'm unsettled by the things I'm listening to. I'm unsettled by what I've seen, Lord, in 56, almost 57 years of living in this church. I'm unsettled because I see how quickly we can get it wrong, how quickly we can wander off. And Lord, it is serious teaching for us to pause and recognize these problems, but But Lord, you've made it so clear. There is one issue, one issue at heart, one issue that will save us, one issue that that will keep us, one issue that will protect us from all the deceit of the dreamers and the false prophets. One, and that is Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us the spirit to fix our eyes on you, author and finisher of our faith, to trust in you, to love you, to follow after you. May all our Bible study be about you. May all our worship be focused on you. May our relationships be centered on you, Lord Jesus.
May you have preeminence in all of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.